I would love to have you take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 1. That will be our primary text, although we will uh, take a journey elsewhere just a little bit. But the book of Acts, chapter 1, and the sermon notes in your bulletin would be very helpful for you to have. There's, you'll see an extended version today, some things I'll be referring to uh, just a little bit later. But this, today then, uh, we want to begin just a two-part, two-part conversation called The Church in the World. Every fall when we begin, I'd like to, to, to just remember with us what a church is supposed to be. And so each fall, we, we take a look at that in some way or another. So this year, that will be uh, this Sunday and next, The Church in the World. Today, remembering the mission And if you find it at the end of your sermon notes, then next week, the church and the world embracing the conflict. And uh, the gospel does go forward. The story of Jesus does go forward often in the midst of conflict. And I want to talk about that next Sunday, uh, what that looks like and what it can look like and why you press on anyway, uh, being the church and the world. So you you get the idea of what we want to do. Then, of course, the 24th, we will begin a, a sermon series in the book of Mark. That will take us until the end of next June. Our bread and butter here is to work through books of the Bible. Most of our preaching is that, not all of it. Uh, summer series we just did was 10 weeks on some issues of theology, but most of our preaching involves taking a Bible and just talking our way through different Bible books to help us as a congregation be better aware of what the Bible is all about, the big storyline and how each part fits together. Uh, that's really, really what we're after. But today then, the church and the world, I mentioned last week, I have a couple of updates and I want to provide those at this time on some ministry things. And this leads us to the text, believe it or not, it does. Talking about the church and the world. And part of that, as we'll see, involves the church and the community. Uh, about a year ago, you are aware that we as a church began a partnership with a couple of other churches. We did not go out and search for those partnerships, <clears throat> but they both came our way. Central Bible Church up north, Evangelical Free Church, found itself in a tough spot, 15 people or so, a building and no pastor and no path forward and thinking about closing, and ended up in a conversation with us that we might come alongside and help. And so we have done that this last year. It's been about 15 months. And that church is, is, is doing really, really well. Um, uh, in fact, just yesterday began a, a pretty big remodel of the front of their worship area. So central, there's that. Uh, a lot more I could say. Pastor Kevin is our, our lead guy up there. Uh, Pastor Kevin and Yulia. And our staff rotates in in support of that, of that ministry. We assist with worship leadership and so on. Then last September, just about a year ago, we began assisting as well Grace Community Church on the south end in Fernhill. And a similar situation, 20 or under actually, and just thinking about closing and um, not sure about a path forward. In fact, their pastor, is he, right before he was leaving, he was, both of the cases, pastor's retiring. Uh, but he had reached out and we were talking and they were pretty sure they were just going to close and wrap it up. And, and we, we talked about maybe giving it another shot with a little help. So we've been providing preaching assistance and worship leadership assistance. And some of our folks have gone to both of those places, which is wonderful. We, we, are not, uh, we believe that God is at work in other places than right here in this geographical location. Um, so that's what's gone on in both of those cases. Um, now, both at Central and at Grace this coming ministry year, they're working with some of their folks to provide additional preaching support. So I'm after something here. Stay with me on this. Some of you've worried about us as, as your staff. 
like you're preaching at Central, you're preaching at Grace, you're preaching here, um, can you keep this up? Well, yes is the answer, but that isn't our main, our main mission. We're wanting to see other people raised up to, to preach in those other settings, and that is happening. So our, 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 the dependence of, of those two ministries on us, this next ministry year, will decline a bit. Okay? I'm not done. But, but you've got that part. Okay, good. Now, about that. Um, over the past number of months, uh, we have also been in conversation with another church. And this is a different situation, uh, not the same areas of need, but I want to tell you about this, okay? So down on 19th Street, uh, Temple Baptist Church has been down there for a number of years, used to be downtown, and then now at this current location since about, I want to say 2001, and they've been without a pastor for six years, and uh, they've had an interim pastor for the past four, and he is concluding his uh, time there uh, on the 24th of September, leaving them at a place where they're not sure how to move forward. So we have agreed to step alongside them for a limited period of time. There's a lot I'll say and a lot I won't. For three to four months, okay, uh, to provide preaching help uh, as they discuss their path forward. Okay? So that will involve a whole number of things, uh, not the least of which will be that extra bandwidth by raising up other preachers in the other settings, some of that will be used in the next three to four months or so to support the ministry at Temple Baptist. Okay? So you'll hear me on various days saying, so-and-so's preaching at Central, so-and-so's at Grace, and so-and-so is at Temple, and then we're here. Okay? So there are other moving parts to that. It is a different setting. We'll not be needing to provide worship support, worship leadership, um, we will not be inviting you all to go join them. Uh, they're working on their path forward. So th- th- anyway, it's a, it's a kind of a more defined situation. It's just a different, such, uh, a different setting. So, so wanted you to know that. We won't be calling them a, a branch campus, things like that. Okay? I'll let you know more if there's more to say. But that's what it is today. All right? The church in the world... Uh, we, we want to be what God wants us to be. Um, I want to pray for us. We'll step into our morning study. Our Father, thank you so much for the chance to begin this fall of ministry together. And as a church family this morning, to be remembering together the mission that you have laid out for us, you have defined the purpose of the church. It's not up to us to make it up. You have defined it and called us to hear it, understand it, and live it. And we need your help to make it so. And so we invite you today, O God, uh, by the work of the Spirit of God among us, using the Word of God to shape our thoughts and our affections, our obedience, in ways that would be pleasing to you. So help us this morning and in the weeks ahead as we begin this next ministry year together. Guide our steps. Bless these other ministries, others in the community who are preaching the good news of Jesus. Uh, We long to see the gospel go forth all around us. So help us now as we turn to the scriptures in Jesus' name.
Amen. So as you think about the mission of the church, we often think of missions, like global partnerships and so on. That's not a bad thing. I mentioned here, as you look at your sermon notes, the direction I'm going to go, uh, just remembering back to the 1800s, which if you know your church history, you're aware of the 1800s, often called the great century of, of world missions. Uh, I give you a whole list of names here. My goodness sakes, if you've studied the history of missions, then you know the stories of William Carey, Ann and Ed Niram Judson, David Livingston, the Moffats, the Slessers, and Hudson Taylor, and a myriad of others who, who left a major mark in some area of the world for the cause of Christ. Now, it seemed at that time that the eyes of the evangelical world were opened. Now, some cases they did things well, in some cases they didn't. Um, There are always people who talk about colonialism and, uh, oh my goodness, so many things that you could say about the gospel going to the ends of the earth, Uh, sometimes well, sometimes poorly. Are there faults to be pointed out? Of course. Uh, How much can you do, you or me, and not have a flaw? I mean, come on, we mess it up all the time. But the gospel going forth uh, to the ends of the earth but, but we find the call to do this in the Bible. People weren't just making it up. Uh, it wasn't just that somebody said, hey, we've got boats now that go to the ends of the earth. Let's, let's go. Now, it wasn't a lark. People typically died because back in those days, especially as people traveled to other parts of the world, uh, they were exposed to viruses and germs and all kinds of things that their bodies had no immunity to. There are parts of Africa that were called the graveyard, a graveyard of, of European missionaries who would come. Uh, some missionaries who went to the West Indies uh, would go packing their, truly, packing their possessions in a coffin because they were likely to need it, uh, probably within 24 months of arrival. Uh, that was what you expected. But for many young people, they saw the, the, the necessity of taking the gospel to the world as worth it. And so they loaded up and went. Ah, the story of Jesus. Now, we live in a different day, different time. You get on airplanes instead of boats, typically, and you can be about anywhere in the world in 24 hours. And uh, all kinds of germs have already made their way around. We're familiar with that. And uh, maybe a little immunity or something uh, to help you along the way. Things are different. Things are different. But things are different in the church, too. Because the same, the same passion to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth uh, in many cases has been replaced with the passion to keep ourselves pretty warm and comfortable. To be blunt, churches are often measured more by, well, do I like the music? Is the preacher any good? Uh, are the chairs comfortable? Do they know what to do with the AC? Uh, these things become, is there a good kids program or not? Uh, what's the paint on the wall? We tend to measure churches these other ways. I'm not saying those things are unimportant. Please don't hear that. I'm, I'm simply saying often the mission The mission is somewhere down the line, relegated to a lower position. So when we think about the mission, I want to just define for you what people who study the Bible often talk about as the great commandment and the great commission. Okay, Jesus defined for us the great commandment, which, as you'll recall, is to love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love the Lord first. The second commandment, Jesus said in that conversation, is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. So the great commandment. Then the great commission. 
Uh, We'll see one telling of that in today's text. We often go to Matthew 28 for good reason, but go and take the gospel, make disciples, right? Go and take the gospel, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them, and so on. But that taking of the gospel, the story of Jesus to the ends of the earth, the great commission, well, good. Well, we want to look at some of this today, and I want us to remember it. And I want us to remember why we as a church see the great commandment and the great commission as core, central to our existence and how it's reflected in our church life. So I want you to see some of the DNA elements and how the great commandment and the great commission are reflected in what we do so that we don't get, we don't get this inverted and think that we measure the church by a different metric. Okay? So that's what I'm after today. If you look at the, the sermon notes in front of you, today's text, I want to, I now that I've got you in Acts chapter 1, uh, we'll be right back, but I'm going to take a journey first. And I want to go back to the beginning of Luke. And the reason is that the two books, Luke and Acts, were written by the same person, Dr. Luke, a first century physician, to the same audience, an audience of one, knowing there's going to be a circulation broader than that. But I want you to see... The, the opening few verses of both of these. So I'm going to read Luke 1, 1 to 4, and then go straight to Acts and start to be, read the beginning of the text. Okay, our, our main text for the morning. But, but I want you to see what Luke is after. So the gospel of Luke, this one of the foretellings of the, of the story of Jesus, it goes like this, Luke 1, 1 to 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, they've delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, see what Luke's after, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty. There's his goal. I want you to have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. And so he tells the story of Jesus. I want you to have certainty. Uh, we live in a world of uncertainty, alert of, a world of ambiguity, of course, but, but Luke begins the telling, his telling of the story of Jesus saying, I've researched carefully. Other people have talked about the same things, but I've put my pen to paper, so to speak, because I want you as my friend to have certainty about what you've heard. So here's the story of Jesus. Now, you come to then the book of Acts, like part two. So the first, the first part, the book of Luke, is the telling of the story of Jesus up to his death, burial, and resurrection. And then the book of Acts, he picks it up again, the story of what we call the early church. So I read then Acts chapter one. I'm going to read here one through eight, all right? So notice the similarity. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach, until the day that he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. And I'll just mention most of your other translations, ESV doesn't, but most of the others will say by many convincing proofs, emphasizing the, 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 how, how convincing uh, they found the resurrection from the dead. Okay, so by many, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. There's his intro. Now, while staying with them, 
He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then, of course, if you look into verse 9, he left. Try that. He just, he leaves. He ascends to heaven. This is that moment. His disciples standing there, a jaw drop moment. Did he just say that and leave? We've never seen that. He, he just left. And then angels show up and say, hey, what are y'all looking at? My translation. What are y'all looking at? Uh, I think you should go back to Jerusalem. So now you'll remember by chronology here, Jesus died on the cross, Passover time. This is now 40 days later. So they've had 40 days during which Jesus, the resurrected Christ, has moved among them and they've seen him and those convincing proofs. They've come to the realization he is alive. So 40 days. Then he says, wait in Jerusalem. There's going to be 10 more days. They have a 10-day prayer meeting, about 120 of them in an upper room, as you'll read on. And then Pentecost, 50 days. Pentecost gives you a certain chronology by its terms. Pentecost comes 50 days after, after Passover. So Christ dies on the cross, rises from the dead, Passover. 40 days later, ascends to heaven, 10-day prayer meeting. Holy Spirit comes in a whole new way. So that's kind of a, a, a chronological look. But I'm after a couple things here from the text, okay? So, so look with me then. I'm giving you three headings. Uh, for this, for our, our time here today, Acts 1, 1 through 6, this first one. I put the heading here, it's time for the kingdom, right? I want us to look together at the mindset. These folks who are standing there with Jesus, what are they hearing? What are they expecting? Because the Bible's very clear on this. They're thinking different than you, okay? Not only, of course, because it's a couple thousand years ago, but but they were they had their sights set on something. I put here under your first heading, the followers of Jesus have paid attention in Sabbath school. I, I would have written Sunday school, but that would not have been correct. So Sabbath school, they paid attention. They're good Jewish folks here. They know the Bible. The Bible at that time, Old Testament. The New Testament hasn't shown up yet. haven't written it yet. So they know Old Testament prophecy. And listen, it sure looks to them like this is the end time. Because they're pretty smart cookies. They've been paying attention in Sabbath school, and it sure looks to them like all the signs, it's time, it's now. Now, uh, I'm asking what could they possibly be missing? Well, other than maybe the entire church age, a couple thousand years or so, they might have missed it by that far. But, but I don't want to pick on them. But I've given you there under my second heading a number of texts that I want to just visit briefly. It's a look into their mind. Okay, why are they asking what they're asking in verse 6? That's what I want to answer for us. Okay, so I'm going back to Luke's other book, uh, Gospel of Luke. We could look at a number of other texts these things uh, show up in, but I've chosen these for us. I think it'll be clear enough. So you come back to Luke 19. You see the list of texts there in bold. Luke 19.11, uh, Jesus is journeying toward Jerusalem 
Um, this is that part of, the, of Luke's gospel where his, the triumphal entry is right around the corner. He's headed right in to the final week of his earthly life. And so you read in Luke 19 then, starting verse 11, as they heard these things, the disciples, as they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell them the parable because he was near to Jerusalem, and watch this, because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So he's going to tell them a story. But that's what they're thinking. They're thinking, hey, I paid attention to Old Testament prophecy. It's about time. It's time. The kingdom, it's supposed to come now. Now, if you go a little further, Luke 22, my next text there, Luke 22, Jesus seems to be saying the same thing. A little further along in the chronology, he's not gone to the cross yet, but, but they're heading that direction. They're, they're thinking Jesus is an earthly Messiah. He's going to throw out the Romans, and it's gonna, he's going to make Israel great again. You understand. So, so in Luke 22, Jesus seems to be fanning that view into flame rather than disabusing them of it. So we read Luke 22. He says to his disciples, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That sounds great. Let's go ahead with that. So you've got a, a group of disciples around him going, kingdom, 12 thrones. <clears throat> hey, Peter, John, thrones. Yeah, none of this fishing stuff anymore. Thrones, baby, thrones, judging people. <laughs> oh, buddy, this is a new job description. This is going to be great. This should start right about now. now. You understand then, of course, why it was so utterly devastating when the person who just said this to them, uh, a chapter or two later, dies. I mean, whatever happened to the kingdom? Or the thrones? They just killed the king. I mean, I guess I'm going, later on, you read in John's gospel, they went back fishing. I'm going back fishing. No kidding. Like, you know what? Those thrones? I think, I think, Maybe we misunderstood. I think, I think maybe, maybe he misunderstood. They went, back, they went back fishing. Okay, but at this moment, they hear this throne thing, and they're going, yeah, buddy, this is great. Now, one more. I want to go to Luke 24. And, of course, in the intervening uh, section between 22 and 24, Jesus has died on the cross, risen from the dead, and they're trying to wrap their, their minds around what this resurrection thing is all about. And at the end of Luke's gospel, he, I think this is melding into Acts 1. It's kind of a crossover of the two. So Luke ends, Acts begins, and it's right in that, that, that different telling of the same story. But you, you come here then to Luke 24, starting verse 48 is where I'll go. Jesus says to them, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, I mention that because, as you see on your sermon notes here, this would have drawn to their good Jewish minds what we would call Old Testament prophecy. It was their Bible, Old Testament. It would have drawn to their minds. I can imagine the guys, again, folks sitting around going, wait, wait, clothed with power from on high, ascending of the Spirit of God? That's Ezekiel. That's Ezekiel 39. I gave you the text. If you go back and read that, you'd say, wow, Jesus is almost like quoting that. And then, of course, Joel 2. It'll come to pass in the last days. Uh, you know, the spirit of God's going to be poured out. Your sons and daughters will see visions. And my goodness sakes, this is going to be amazing. And his disciples are thinking, it's now. Here we go. What's going on? What is all this? But their minds are, are feeding on Old Testament 
And so you come back then to Acts 1, as I return here. That's something of the background to the question in verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What are they saying? All the things you've been leading up to, Jesus, is it now? Is this it? Because I've been looking at the prophetic calendar, as they say, the prophetic clock, and it sure looks to me like it's ticking toward midnight. Is it now? Now, similar, of course, to what people are asking today. Have you noticed? Maybe just a little bit. As things change in the culture around us, and the world seems to shift, and um, the movement of the nations, and cashless society uh, coming quickly to a a country near you, and so many elements that people look at and say, that's an end-time event marker. It's a birth pang, as Jesus would say uh, in the Olivet Discourse. It's that. Anybody who's paying attention can see it. May I just say, kindly, that's exactly what Jesus' followers thought 2,000 years ago. Anybody can see it. It's time for the kingdom. Now, hear me carefully, please. I am the last person to want to put a, you know, to squash thinking about prophetic issues. I don't want to squash that. But I'm also aware that through the years here, and actually for the last 2,000 years, along the way, there have been these moments when it sure looks like this is it. Now, there'll be a day that it will be it. People make two equal and opposite mistakes here, honestly, when they think about prophetic issues. One is they're chomping at the bit and saying, we're out of here. The opposite event is to say, forget it. You'll never know. And, just forget, and do just forget it. We don't want to do either one of those. But, but at the same time, I'm just today wanting us to notice, it's here in the text as we think about the mission, the, the disciples of Jesus asked a really good question. This is an educated question. This means they paid attention. It means they read their Bibles. Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because you're going to do that. You will. Is it now? What a great question. Now, Jesus, of course, then, that's under this category, time for the kingdom. Oh, oh, I want to comment on that third one. Prophetic frenzies. Uh, oh, another word about this um, before I leave it alone. Well, I could go back over 2,000 years. There have been regular moments when, when people thought that this was it. But one I want to point out, and some of you know these things because you're familiar with the history of the church in America, but if you go back about 150 years, uh, a little more than that, you'll, you'll see an event called the Great Disappointment. Some of you are familiar with that. There was a good Baptist preacher. He was a good Baptist by the name of William Miller. And he did a lot of study in prophecy and studied numbers and all these different things and Book of Daniel and Book of Revelation. And he did what a lot of people are doing. And he worked it all out and he said, I see it. And I know when Jesus is coming. And he had a date. Now, I realize we would never be so foolish. We would come danger close, though. But William Miller, good Baptist preacher, he had it figured out. He had a bunch of folks who listened to him preach. And he explained to them how he got there. This, 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 this number, that number, that book of Daniel. Here, that's the date. And he had a bunch of people who said, you know what? Forget the 401k, baby. We are out of here. Well, you, you understand, mid-1800s, they probably didn't have quite the 401ks, but you get the, the shift for a lot of people. So is this day, I mean, there was a day picked. Here it is. 
as the day comes closer, are you going to work? I mean, Jesus is coming tomorrow. Are you going to go to work? No, I'm out. So you pack a lunch and you get the family. I'm not exaggerating much. We're going to go sit on the highest hill because when Jesus comes, I want a good view. It's going to be amazing. The spectacular nature. Like he's, this guy's going to open. Jesus is coming. You sit on the top of the hill. You get there in the morning and you get a cup of coffee and the kids are running around playing. It's like today, we're out of here. Lunchtime comes. It's like, great. Well, he, anytime, nap time, put the kids down. They'll be fine. Dinner time. You see what's going on? Dusk. Dark falls. Starting to get cold. A new day dawns. Did we miss it? But what happened? I mean, it, it was, it, it, did he forget? It, did, did we, I mean, hence the, the historic term, the great disappointment. Of course, uh, laid the, some of the foundations for the Adventist movement that came out of that. Not picking on anybody, that's not the point. My point is they were so sure. Uh, Pastor Miller was so sure that he was right. I mean, it's right here, and here's the scripture to support it. Can't you see it? Why can't you see it? Now, of course, again, we would never be so foolish. We, we know date setting and all that. But one of the reasons we say we don't want to set dates, not only Jesus warned us not to do that, but some of us have had, even if we didn't know the story of the great disappointment, we've heard hints of that. People have set dates before. Yeah, they have. It's not only them, not only, them, not only Pastor Miller. Others think they have it figured out. But, but prophetic frenzies, we don't want to live in one and forget the mission. See? You also don't want to forget the prophetic clock. So you can make two equal and opposite errors. It's time for the kingdom, right? Okay, so Jesus, then let's shift. Verses 7 and 8. Here's what he says. But, verse 7, he says to them, it's not for you to know. Here's his answer. It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Uh, Many of us would go right to verse 8 and make that our memory verse. Maybe you should make verse 7 your memory verse. It's not for you to know. There are things that are for you to know, for me. There are other things it's not for you to know. This isn't just about prophecy. How How about the rest of your life? There are things it's not for you to know. God knows, and he hadn't told you. Aren't you glad? Right about the time you think you wish you knew what was coming, you think again and you realize how grateful you are that you don't know what's coming. See, but but God does. Verse seven is a great verse. Now, this would have been a moment for Jesus to say, did you see your mistake? And just spell it out. But he doesn't. You'll notice the absence of information in verse seven. He doesn't fill them in. He doesn't really ask their question like when. But when is it going to be? He never answers the question the implied question. He just says, there's some things for you to know, other things for you not to know. It's called, are you ready? Theological humility. Okay, you think you know, but be careful about some of those things. I say that about a number of things related to prophecy. You think you know, I think I know, but a little theological humility reminds us that others who've gone before us thought they had it right too. So have your your view, have your, I do, I do. I'm a pre-trib, pre-mill guy, and I can explain why. But I won't take a bullet for it, okay? I'll take a bullet for the gospel of Jesus and the blood of Christ. <laughs> uh, but, but there are other elements you go, ah, I think, come on now, I think I'm right, and I'll explain why. I'll arm wrestle you for it. 
but I won't take a bullet. So, interesting things. Now, I, I, I move on then. You'll receive power, moving into verse 8. That's the beginning. But you will receive power. Here's where he goes. Are you ready? He goes to the mission. They're asking questions about end times. Is it time? And Jesus shifts them right back to the mission. That's the point I want you to see today. He doesn't let them stay with, is it time to restore the kingdom? He says, there's a mission. You're not done with it. In fact, it's launching in a whole new way. So he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. I'm going to stop right there for a moment. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. I want to remind you some things about this mission that he's now going to be recasting for them. This, in in a sense, is not new, okay? If you study the Bible starting at the beginning all the way to the end, you see the mission of God. People call it the missio dei, if you would like your good Latin terms, but it's variously spoken in theological circles. The mission of God from the very beginning. We trace it as we're going to this year in our Christmas program. Uh, We have a teaching series with our Christmas programs. If you've been around here a while, you know that. We have a teaching series. Our Christmas programs are not just random. They teach a certain section of theology. This year, we return to the Abrahamic covenant. So you're going to, that's what the program is going to be about, is the Abrahamic covenant and how that tells the story of the gospel, okay? Because it does. Uh, Acts, uh, sorry, Genesis chapter 12, God's call to Abraham and how that reflects the seed of the gospel that's going to continue all the way through. So the mission of God to see the gospel go to the nations. Old Testament focused on the nation of Israel. It was still to be a witness to the nations. The, the call to the nations was loud in the Old Testament. But when you come to the New Testament, this great commission, it's recast for the church, a shift from the focus on Israel alone to now God is doing something different. The disciples didn't see it initially. This rebuilding of, of a group of Jewish folks and Gentile people who did not need to become Jewish. This was a whole new thing. People didn't see it coming. Next week, we'll talk more deeply about that and the conflict that ensued when people didn't see the working of God and, or disagreed with it. But the, the New Testament church, and as if you read the next couple of chapters, you will notice, and I have this here on your, your sermon notes, this new power revealed on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, it's the coming of the Holy Spirit in a whole new way to indwell, to indwell every person who knows Christ as Savior. I'm going to be being very specific in the way I'm speaking of this, because I think it's important that we think through carefully some of these details in the Bible. So on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came in a whole new way. Was he active in the Old Testament? Yes, 100%. That's a whole study of, remember the theological term? Pneumatology, in our recent summer series, we looked at a lot of ologies. Pneumatology, the study of the Spirit of God. So if you study pneumatology, the work of the Spirit of God, you see the work of of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, and then in the New Testament, a shift here in the book of Acts, hardly able to be denied where the Spirit of God is going to come in a whole new way, indwell, indwell, indwell all who know Christ as their Savior. And I love to arm wrestle about that theologically too, if you doubt it. We can go right to the Scripture. I'm not the authority, but I think the Scripture is. On the day of Pentecost, the early followers of Jesus, by the work of the Spirit of God, spoke the gospel, I have it on your sermon notes, in actual languages of people present that day. 
Now, you can discuss all kinds of workings of the Spirit of God in other ways from other texts, but I press you back to Acts chapter 2 to say demonstrably in that story, and again, it's beyond the scope of our larger study today, I'm focusing on the mission, but the Spirit of God allowed those, those 120 who'd been in a 10-day prayer meeting when the Holy Spirit came to speak languages they had never studied, languages that were known by people present. So somebody, and it's in the book of, you just read Acts chapter two, it's what it says. Here's a list of folks, here's a list of the languages, and these guys started speaking the gospel in those languages, and people said, they're speaking my language. They were hearing the gospel in their heart language, and it was stunning to them. Now, are these people drunk? How can they do it? But they, they weren't drunk. The Spirit of God was giving them ability to speak a language they'd never studied, and they used that moment to speak the gospel. It kick-started the church. 3,000 people came to Christ. Wow, that's pretty cool. Ah, they heard the gospel in their own language, the mission. See, it was, it was jump-started in a whole new way. Now, this is my, I'm on the back side of my sermon notes. This is bullet point number five under that heading. You'll receive new power and bullet point number five, the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, the power of the Holy Spirit is also evidenced in the book of Acts in holy boldness, I call it. Gave you a reference, Acts 4.31. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they... No, they didn't speak in other languages. They preached the word of God with boldness. The story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's what they preached. They preached it with holy boldness. That was evidence of, of being filled with the spirit of God, controlled by, controlled by the spirit of God. They preached with boldness, unprecedented unity between previously divided people groups. How do you see unity really take place between people who shouldn't even be talking takes the work of the Spirit of God. Next week, again, Acts 15, Ephesians 3, we'll talk more about that aspect. But I'm saying, as Jesus speaks in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And now I go to the second part of that in my last heading, the mission. You will be, you see this? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, I mentioned here, your sermon notes, the book of Acts records the geographical extension of the gospel. If you study the book of Acts, you can, you can trace that, that geographical extension. The gospel is starting in Jerusalem, and then due to persecution, there's a dispersion. Uh, you remember the persecution of uh, Saul's a part of that, the death of Stephen, and it says the, the disciples were, were spread abroad. Okay, forced, forced to leave. They like to have, they were all hanging out in Jerusalem. This is great. Isn't it fun to hang out with everybody, with a whole group of people who are just like you, homogenous? Isn't this great? In fact, remember I talked about how the mission of the church often gets flipped on its head. People think it should be like summer camp all the time. You're sitting around making s'mores and singing Kumbaya by the fire. I mean, who's not, what's not to like about this? But summer camp comes to an end, doesn't it? You can't stay at summer camp. It's like a retreat, women's retreat, men's retreat. If it was only so simple just to stay at a retreat, people cook for you, you don't have to do any laundry, no kids. I mean, you love the darlings, but if it was only like a retreat all the time, but it isn't. You have to go back from the retreat or the camp to the real world where the work goes on. See? So, so the book of Acts, the first part is in Jerusalem. Then persecution comes and they're scattered. They go to Judea, Samaria, and they go to the ends of the earth. Now, of course, I'll just remind you of the obvious when we read the end of the earth, we hear something different than these early people did. 
because they're thinking, boy, the ends of the earth, they're thinking all the way to the whole Roman Empire? Heard of this place called Africa, um, heard of this place called Asia. They hadn't heard of a lot of other places that you're familiar with because you took eighth grade geography. So you're, you're, you see it with a different mind than they initially heard it because you have a bigger picture of the world. You, some of you have been to a lot of places, okay? So you have a bigger picture of the world. The end of the earth, uh, they didn't see it as quite as big as all that. Today, as I mentioned here on your notes, wow, unreached people groups. There are still on this planet unreached people groups, groups that don't even have the Bible in their own mother tongue. Did you know that? So you have some wonderful mission groups who are working on translating the Bible and taking the words of the gospel. We were partnering not too long ago with Biblical Ministries Worldwide. Um, They have some initiatives in in Indonesia we were talking about. One case, a guy who was a director of that mission at the time, he was talking to some of us in, in uh, in a different setting, pastor's conference, and he was saying, I've got some Bibles that are translated into some languages. I've got some people in the hills in Indonesia, and I have nobody to take them. Really, we've had a few people from there. We got the Bible translated. You want to go? I'm waiting for takers. See, I got the whole Bible or the New Testament or parts of it translated. I don't have anybody to go. This is, this is kind of a problem. See, so who should do that? Well, yeah. Well, not me. I'll pray about it. I'll support others who go. These are, these are discussions that take place in, in a lot of different settings. Who should go? Well, I put on your notes here, see the second bullet point. The gospel extension in Acts takes place with profound passion, that it is not just a fad. Pro, joyful sacrifice of a number of types, financial sacrifice, discomfort, physical suffering, even loss of life. If you read the story of the great century and since uh, and before, you know that missionaries down through the years have lost their lives. And parents quickly say, take someone else's kids. Sorry, not picking on you. I'm just saying. It's an old hymn about missions. We used to sing it. Give of your sons. Today we would say, and your daughters. But it didn't fit the song. Give of your sons to bear the message glorious. Give of your wealth to speed them on their way. Pour out your soul to them, for them in prayer victorious. And all that you spend, Jesus will repay. Remember that song, some of you? Give of your sons. Today, we're more likely, again, I I know, I understand. um, We're more likely to tell our kids when they grow up, you can live anywhere you want as long as you're within 50 miles of me. (laughs) We're more likely to say that instead of go. Go to the ends of the earth, children. Grow up and take the gospel. Go, go. I'll see you again in heaven. I'm reminded here of the story of Anne and Adoniram Judson. This is a different day. And I find it convicting of my own heart. Um, Adoniram Judson knew God had called him. He believed to Burma. And, and, and so he, and then he met this wonderful young lady, Anne Hazeltine, and um, was pursuing her as a wife. He wrote a letter to her dad to ask for her hand in marriage. And I, I could read it to you. I don't have it in front of me now. But, but it goes something like this. Um, will, you give, will you give me permission to marry your daughter knowing you will see her no more in this life? Within a month, we're going to leave for Burma. And the, it's a terrible place for disease. And most people who go die. Will you give me permission to marry your daughter? How about that? Your dad said, I will let her decide. She said yes. And got on a boat with Adoniram. And indeed, uh, her parents never saw her again in this life. 
we quickly today look at such things and say, but was it worth it? My goodness sakes, the Moravians of old who sent people to the West Indies, knowing that in some cases to reach the enslaved population, the only way to do it was to sell yourself as a slave too and work amongst them in the fields. And they had takers on that. Young people who believed in the reality of heaven and the reality of hell and said, the gospel needs to go, I'll go. Packing their possessions in a coffin because they were likely to need it within the first 24 months. About the average lifespan if you move to a, a climate like that. Probably within two, within two years, you'll probably die. Hey, got your coffin ready, perfect. And people did it. Were they foolish? Crazy people? No, I just think somehow they had, a, they had an understanding of the mission in a way that we don't. I'm not saying we should pack our stuff in a coffin and go, I understand things are different, but I'm wondering how different. How do we understand the mission of the church? And as we head toward a conclusion here, you'll notice on your sermon notes, I've given you our mission, our vision, our core values. Uh, we put this, that part of the document together right before COVID. <laughs> I might have interrupted a few things, possible, but I'd like you to read it. Read again uh, the words we tried to use to speak of our mission, our vision. We're trying to capture Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth and how we want to have a part in all that. Uh, earlier today, Pastor Craig gave you some announcements. If you listen carefully, you will have heard things announced that relate to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. They're all in the bulletin. Those core values from Acts 1.8 are represented in the life of this church. It is not by accident and I'm calling us this year, then, as we begin another ministry year, to remember the mission. To remember that the mission, the mission isn't to create a church environment where it's full of warm fuzzies and everybody feels good, likes the this and this and this and this, and everybody agrees on everything trivial. That isn't the point. It's nice when that happens. It's not the mission. You can have nice, warm, fuzzy places that everybody's happy and, and not have the mission going. I don't want any part of it. No, God has called us to something far greater. See, next week, embracing the conflict <laughs> doesn't always go well. But we must remember the mission. It must drive us. So the next time you say, yeah, but I don't like, fill in the blank here. You know what? I'll be gentle here. Who cares? On most of the things people get disgruntled about and say, but I don't like, most of it, who cares? Is the mission central? If it isn't, then move on. But if the mission is central, who cares about some of the other stuff? Let it go, baby. Let it go. I hope that we're like that. I hope we're driven by God's mission. Would you stand with me? I'd like to pray for us. Read the rest of your sermon notes. Father, I thank you so much for how you are at work in this church family. Oh, we have so much to do better. So many areas. Oh, sometimes overwhelming. But our Father, we want to be about the mission. We want to be about the great commandment. We want to be about the great commission. And I pray that you would help us as a church family to be, to be honed in on those things that are most important. Keep us, keep us from being captured so much by the things that ultimately aren't the main point. Our Father, um, forgive us for being so easily distracted.
drive us on. I pray for this week ahead that you'd help us as we head into this world, as this community, uh, programs beginning ESL here tomorrow, caring for grieving people this afternoon, and all the rest. Be honored in us, through us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.